Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, our 14th season here on CJAD 800. My name is Dan Delmar with Mike Newton of FL Montreal. Mike, welcome back to the show that was formerly called Today's Entrepreneur. Dan, it's great to be back. It's uh, it's the beginning with a, of, a, of a new season. It's a new name. It's uh, hopefully a new season for a whole bunch of us as we get back to work and back into the environment of, uh, of kind of, dare I say, post-COVIDian, even though we're going to have to learn to live with it going forward. So it's great to be here and it's great to rebrand and uh, I think it's very significant. It's a, it's a really exciting rebrand for me because uh, our company, TNKR, is taking control of the rebrand. And thank you for agreeing to it, Mike. I convinced you because to me, it's all about the return to the office, right? It's getting back to normal. And we wanted a title that just conveyed the goal to inspire entrepreneurs in Montreal and to learn from some of the most inspiring Quebec business leaders. We really want to inspire entrepreneurs to get back to work and to make bold moves. Totally agree. And, and, you know, and, and, and I think after two and a half years of, of COVID, people are going to say the bold move is bringing people back to the office. Uh, I think the bold move is learning to, to continue to move forward and evolve in a world where uh, the workforce and philosophical approaches to work itself have changed dramatically. Some of that will be a return to the office in order to facilitate efficiency. And some of it's just going to be making bold moves to change the way we've done things for 10, 20, 30 years. Years. And what a great way to start this 14th season with the new name, then to speak to Peter Simons of Simons, the iconic Quebec-based family business, the oldest family business in the entire country in Canada. It's really an incredible story. And Peter will join us on the program shortly, Mike. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's fascinating from so many perspectives. I think it, it's fascinating that a family business has run that long. We know the stats. Uh, you know, if you're going to go to Vegas, uh, you'd get really good odds that he never would have lasted that long or the family never would have lasted that long. Anyways, it's it, it, it's fascinating from so many directions uh, that a business, a family business has lasted that long. Uh, certainly, statistically, he's way outperformed anything and you would have gotten great odds in Vegas that he wouldn't have succeeded at it. So uh, I think there's a lot to offer uh, to us. It's great to have somebody of that ilk and a family business that certainly uh, you know, has bucked the trend over the years of maintaining that family business. And uh, uh, they're, they're moving into a new, uh, a new era where uh, the new CEO for the first time is not going to be a family member. And you know that brings up a whole discussion of succession, uh, planning, and uh, continuity within a family business now. Succession is such an interesting topic. There's an entire TV show on Crave uh, that deals with the subject. And Peter Simons' choice was to go out gradually and to sort of pave the way in a gradual way. We'll explore that a little bit and explore his uh, his role as the, as the chief merchant of the company now. But first, Mike, uh, you wanted to quickly talk about mental health in the workplace. Of course, that's front and center. It's really the first thing that we both wanted to talk about at the beginning of the show today, because people are going back to work even more than, uh, than last fall, of course. And there's this phenomenon of ghosting, right? People just not showing up or leaving their jobs in record numbers. What's the summer been like as far as your clients, as far as Montreal? Are we seeing the kind of exodus that that American companies are reporting? I don't think there's any difference between us and, and you know once you cross the border into into the U.S. I think there, you know, people aren't showing up to, for either work. People are getting jobs, never even showing up to work. Uh, people are getting interviews and never showing up to their interview. I mean, it's a whole different approach. I mean, it, it's led to a, a you know. A, 
one of the things that we're starting to see as well is people refusing to do overtime. It's kind of a it, the revolution, if you will, of 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 the of the office worker and many other workers. And you know, the the term that you've probably all heard recently is what they've coined as quiet quitting, which you know it, it seems like the term quiet quitting you know, actually means that somebody's quitting. It has nothing to do with that at all. What it does mean is, is basically telling your boss, you know, I'm only going to work my nine to five. I'm only going, I'm not going to do anything additional. Uh, when someone quietly quits, they're actually not leaving their job. Instead, like I said, they're choosing to stay in the role, but saying goodbye to the unnecessary stress that has been added to their lives from consistently going above and beyond by taking on responsibilities that do not fall under their job description. Now I can say to you, well, that's wonderful. And that should be the concept. And that's why unions were created. And, you know, that whole uh, employment uh, movement, I, you know, the, the reality is, is, is this is creating a very interesting dynamic within our, our environments. Uh, and I think if you look at varying professions, uh, you're going to see a different, differing stage. I think a lot of the professional firms uh, are, are suffering from this quiet quitting perspective because a lot of the professional firms were traditionally, you know, above and beyond what what was requested. And you know, and certainly in in our firm, uh, you know, we we're seeing some of that as well. So nobody is exempt from from this process. Uh, and and it will continue to to play. And you know, as some people say, maybe it's going to take a really good recession before everybody wakes up again and changes. I hope it's not the case because you know we can really do without that. But you know, all the stats are telling us we're on the cusp of one now. So what that what this is going to look like from an employment perspective going forward is hard to tell. The one thing I do have with with the concept of of quiet quitting are a lot of terms that have come out of it that that really over the last little while need to be addressed accountability, narcissism, uh, nihilism, even to a certain degree. I mean, those people that have stayed at home have found themselves uh, down the rabbit hole of negativity and not trusting things. That implication comes back and haunts us at, at the office. We were talking uh, last season on the show about keywords that define business communications, uh, you know, stuff that we use in, in, in our work. And, uh, you know, the earlier part of the pandemic may have been resilience, teamwork. The latter part of the pandemic, purpose, meaning, goals, mission, words like that we find being used a lot. Um, is that the is that the key to to the malaise that we that we feel at the office as we come back, uh, reinstilling a sense of purpose and mission in your team? The short answer is yes. Uh, the long answer is it's way more complicated than that. Uh, at the end of the day, I think you know where where we will continue in most places to butt heads on the definition of profitability. Is that a numerical number? Is that a contributory to the society? Is that uh, an environmental cost? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that come into play here. But I think right now, what needs to happen is there needs to be a little bit of a, a gut check across. Uh, employers and employees. This is you know, this is a two-sided equation. I mean, this is not uh, you know one. The one thing we've learned in the last little while is everybody's been really good at pointing the finger, and I, th I think that there's there's a time now where people need to start becoming accountable to one another. And whether that is your fellow worker, whether that's your boss, whether that's your employee, whatever the scenario may be, I think that accountability is lacking in most things we do. And you could say, well, you know, if if I offer you a job and you accept and you don't show up, I'd say there's a problem with accountability. I mean, even if even just 
call and say, I don't want the job. So I, I think there's a lot of things going on right now that, that need a little bit of a gut check. And I think, you know, if you, if you want to use the term, it's like, you know, you cage an animal for too long, they come back a little irrational and a little, uh, uh, you know, a, a little outside the realm of, of their logic. And I, I think we're starting to see some of that in, in, in the environments as we get everybody back to, back to, back to work and, you know, use the term normal before. I'm not sure what normal is going to look like anymore. You're listening to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, formerly today's entrepreneur for our 14th season, uh, Mike Newton. And for the 14 years that I've known you, you've always been a show up early, stay late at the office kind of guy. Now we're in a whole different paradigm. You, you, you still remain a show up early at the office, everyday kind of guy. I have shifted. I'm a very much a pro hybrid work. Are you going to give a little? Or, and and how how is it going as a boss? Do you find that your employees... Uh, want to be at work as much as you want them to be at work. So I'd say you've got you're you're dealing with two animals here. You've got me and you've got everybody else. So my choice of being in the office early and leaving late and and needing to be in the office was one of a personal decision. It was partially the way I was brought up. It's partially my values. And in all honesty, it has a very large role to play in my mental sanity. Uh, the remote work works under particular circumstances. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as you and I have talked about, I pretty much was back at the office in May 2020 after uh, with with, you know, our, our small team that we had on site. And you know, it was really nice to say I'm here to support everybody. Part of it was just for my own sanity. So, you know, the, the the ability to change who I am, I guess, as I get older, maybe is not that simple, but I do recognize for staff, it's a very, you know, and the team and, and even some of my younger partners. I mean, it's a different world. I mean, the, 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 the thing that suffers and, and it's very difficult because nobody has yet figured out how to either coin a new definition of culture or what a culture looks like in the world that we've been living lately. And, and, and I think this has probably been one of the hardest things for everybody to accept right now. And if you take a firm like ours, which traditionally a smaller firm in a, in, in a niche area who's really sold itself on culture, uh, finds it difficult to, to redefine what culture looks like today when you know some of your employees want to work from home. And, and again, it's not a passing of judgment. It's what does that culture look like? And are we still selling to the same people? And, and I think we've got, you know, Peter... When we talked to Peter earlier off air, you know, one of the things he talks about is the job is not just about thinking about, you know, tomorrow, but as a business owner, I'm thinking five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road. It's, it's, it's a challenge for a lot of people. And, and, and unfortunately, right now, I think there's an awful lot of trial and error going on. You know, going back to some of our first shows, you know, we're talking about the pre-social media era, really, or when social media was just getting started. We often, we had a lot of theme shows that were uh, brick versus mortar right? As if you had to choose. Uh, obviously, now it's more of a hybrid model, brick and mortar, as Peter Simons uh, will, will explain to us. Do you think that's the future? I mean, uh, you know, the flagship store of Simons, which we'll talk about downtown, still there, still going strong after, you know, 20 plus years. It seems like uh, it seems like people still do want to go out and shop and, and have an in-person experience, whether it's uh, at work or uh, retail shopping. I agree. I, I think you're going to continue. And I don't think it's just an age bracket. Uh, I mean, there are certain times where, you know, shopping online to have it show up tomorrow so I don't have to get out of my jammies is is, is really comforting and, and warm to know. Um, you know, for a lot of people, as they've learned in the last few years, the longer they've spent in isolation at home, the further down the rabbit hole they have gone. Uh, 
you know, a good example of all of that is, you know, we said, oh, well, this whole trend of now ordering in food and never going back to restaurants. Well, you know, as soon as we lifted the lid on the ability to go back to a restaurant, I mean, the restaurants were packed and I can't travel anywhere that is not seeing restaurants packed. The problem is, is there's a lot less of them, but the reality is, is people still want to be out. We're still social animals to a certain degree uh, and some more than others. And the reality of bricks and mortar is going to, to continue. I mean, I think it'll change. There might be a large change in how we perceive bricks and mortar. It may change the availability times on a store, you know, where we're having problems hiring staff, the old hours of, you know, nine to nine may know there, there may have to be changes in, in, in the way we do things. And I think when you go back to the statement you made earlier about making some bold changes, these are the things that we have to start addressing going forward. We're going to talk to Peter Simons about succession planning, the fact that he's opted for a more gradual transition. Are you seeing that a lot more that, uh, that there's no, you know, hard break necessarily with the leader or of an organization, the gold watch, the party goodbye. It's more of a, okay, well, you know, like Dax da Silva from last season, for example, you know, switching to from CEO to chairman. You know, are you seeing a lot more of those gradual transitions? Well, certainly when you're playing in the entrepreneurial world, I mean, the, the, the only time you're going to see a quick exit is usually on a sale. Uh, and in some cases, uh, you know, the, the entrepreneur is asked to stay on. And we all know that if you get 24 months of an entrepreneur, that's a major, major shock because they barely last 12 months of being told what to do by a new buyer. Uh, but the reality is, I think that in the entrepreneurial world is very different than I think you see in the public world, uh, in the public company world. So what, you're, uh, what, what are we seeing now? I, I, if anything, uh, through COVID and through some tough times, we kind of see that lingering a little bit longer, staying on either in a consulting role, staying on in a change of title, staying on somewhere. And the other thing that we're dealing with that, you know, everybody seems to neglect in the conversation is, you know, is how long we live, right? We're, we're dealing in a world where at one point retiring at 60 or 65 was the norm because, you know, you live to be 72. So enjoy yourself. Now, as we continue to live longer, we're either having those entrepreneurs looking for a second career. If it's a family-run business, a lot of times that second career stays within the organization in a different capacity if they can kind of release the, the reins to a certain degree. Um, so, you know, there, there, there is, I'm not seeing a lot of, here's your gold watch. Thanks a lot. It's been really nice seeing you and, and uh, you know, enjoy the next uh, seven years or wait a second, 37 years of retirement. Mike, we're really starting off with a bang, profiling Quebec's oldest family business. You know, it's amazing. We continue to, to, to I guess, to, to evolve and grow over the years with our guests. And uh, certainly this is a great kickstart to a new year, Dan. I want to read a quick introduction. This is from a recent report uh, in the Montreal Gazette. I think it recaps the, the importance of this business throughout Quebec history. Founded in 1840 as a dry goods store by John Simons, the retailer is still controlled by the family through brothers Peter and Richard. It has annual sales of more than $500 million. That from Frederick Tomesco of the Gazette earlier this year. Peter Simons, welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, and thanks so much for kicking off our 14th season. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure. First, the simplest question, really, uh, for, for those that don't know, I'm sure there are uh, not many out there. What is Simons? Simons is a, a sort of a small uh, clothing, fashion, home goods uh, department store, or larger specialty store. Uh, we're Canada's oldest privately owned family business. We were founded in 1840, and my brother and I represent uh, the fifth generation of the family to uh, operate the company. 
fascinating to see a family business that lasts that long in this world that uh, that we're living in today uh, from a, a success perspective, not only from a family dynamics perspective. So it's a very interesting, I guess, hats off to you. And we know the stats after the third generation get pretty poor. Uh, you guys have done a good job. I mean, you've come a long way from your first store in Quebec City and, and, and to the whole big picture, I guess, you guys. Maybe give everybody a little bit of an insight in terms of what that started out as, what kind of that community involvement was and how, how some of that grew over time. Well, we were founded in 1840 in Quebec City and uh, where I currently work. So we've been at that head office for all those years. Um, I mean, we're fifth generation. It's, uh, it's exceptional. There's only, I think, in the world about 27 privately owned family businesses older than 200 years. So my brother and I sort of have our eye on maybe joining that club someday, but that's a little far off. Uh, but uh, it started out just as a dry goods store. The, the world was very different. There wasn't uh, what we call prêt-à-porter. Uh, you know, we sold dry goods and uh, the things women needed to make their own clothes. We always had an outward-looking perspective with uh, traveling to Europe and bringing back uh, home goods and materials and notions and finishings from, from France, from Ireland, uh, from Scotland, which uh, was the, where our family originated. Uh, and it stayed that way quite a long time. My father, who uh, uh, studied at McGill and then uh, went to uh, Chicago to study and work at Carson Peary Scott, who no longer exists, had come back then. And it was really the beginning of the, the appearance of, of shopping centers. And he uh, worked with Sam Steinberg and Marcel Adams at the very beginning in the 50s and 60s. And we opened up uh, over the course of the years, really one, two other stores here in Quebec City. And uh, and and focused on the the market here. So uh, it's been a long ride. It hasn't been an aggressive growth plan in a sense, uh, uh, but uh, we've adapted and we've seen a lot of competitors come and go. But we've had a lot of luck too, I think, uh, in terms of the evolution of the family that's allowed us to uh, remain family controlled and 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 pace our growth in a responsible and thoughtful way. It's been, I think, a lot of the the. Quebec-based retailers that we grew up with, uh, you know, found fell on hard times at some point. You know, obviously from that family perspective, it's you know, power to you to keep it going. The you know, the, the interesting perspective. I think you could. It's only about thirty years ago where you could basically leave Quebec uh, wearing some Simon's fashion, and somebody will go, "Hey, where'd you get that? And why can't I get that anywhere else?" So uh, you know, you, you you managed to create a little bit of a niche and a little bit of an environment outside of Quebec uh, by not even being outside of Quebec. What, uh, you know, I, what was the, obviously the, the European flair and, and influence uh, had a lot to do with it. How much does that still play into, into what you're doing? I mean, we do. We have an, an important team in Quebec, in Montreal and Quebec City that uh, designs and, and uh, controls exclusive merchandise, which is a large portion of our assortment. So it allows us to bring our own perspective to what we're doing. I think our buyers really, they, we curate probably the most complex assortment in the country in terms of mixing up uh, national brands that everyone knows, but a, a, an important uh, assortment of exclusive merchandise. And then also through our buying offices in Florence, uh, we have a buying office in Korea, uh, in Paris, we're able to source a lot of new and upcoming brands. And we've always been focused not so much on the hype behind a name, but the creativity that they really have to earn a place in our assortment. And we continue to try to push that forward to bring new things. And that's been part of our DNA from the 
the time my great great grandfather i mean it's it's in the company lore you know sailed across the atlantic in his life 72 times to source product by boat you know so uh, there was always a desire to go out and see what the world had to offer and try to bring it back to our customers here so that continues, but perhaps we go out into the world and bring ideas back today more so and than actually going out and bringing always product uh, back, but it's a combination of the two. Peter Simons, talk to me about your transition from being a Quebec City company to truly a, a national chain. And I recall uh, some years ago, maybe uh, not even 20, I'm sure, you, you made that big bet with that downtown flagship store. Can you walk me through those discussions and as well as the, the tension in before making that big bet? I guess it was a generational thing. There was no doubt that the industry was changing. We we interacted with a, a, a really a global ecosystem of of creators and 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 there was a lot of things that we wanted to do, and we lacked a little bit the size to do it. We've never been a company that's believed in scale as a strategy. It's always sort of been a bit tactical, but growing would would allow us to sort of bring to fruition a lot of ideas and and give us the ability to work with people that we wanted to work with, be it artists or artisans and, and different creators. Uh, my father always made some very concrete choices to find his balance in life in terms of family and work. And at the time, I think the, the, the industry allowed him strategically to you know keep his three stores in Quebec and he had he had a great life. I mean, it was uh, competitive, but uh, I just felt moving into the '90s that we needed to be a little more important uh, if we were going to survive. And that started the discussion to move out of Quebec, uh, out of Quebec City. Uh, then the old uh, Simpson uh, store came up on uh, Mansfield and St. Catherine, and, and I mean today it looks obvious, but. You know, I remember my father coming. I told him I wanted to do this. He came back from a visit and he, <laughs> he told me, what in the world are you thinking? <laughs> I mean, St. Catherine was not what it was today. It was really on the cusp of coming back to life, uh, to its perhaps former glory. There was a period there that we don't remember. Uh, so we, we worked at it. There was a lot of discussion. It was a, it was a, it was a big decision. Um, I have to give my father credit a little bit. He he was a first sort of very first generation controlling entrepreneur. However, he had the wisdom to leave some space for the, my brother and I and the new generation. And so we were able to find a balance and uh, we decided to move ahead with the project. We were, I keep coming back to luck, you know, there was Claude Lemoureux, uh, uh, there were people at the Bank of Montreal, at uh, different people in the financial community that really supported us because it wasn't an obvious choice and, and we couldn't have done it without... Uh, just the support of our partners that we'd had. I mean, we're, I think we're one of the oldest customers of the Bank of Montreal. I have a, a ledger from 1870 where I owe the Bank of Montreal. I think it's like $6.30. <laughs> I always like to pull that out. <laughs> Those were the good old days. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, you, you touched on something that is very near and dear to my heart, which is this whole discussion of family transition, governance, and everything that comes with it. And, you know, well, if you're, you're, you're five generations deep, uh, you're stepping down now, so you or have stepped down, and for the first time in 182 years, you will have a non-family member at the helm. So uh, it's going to create, uh, I guess, a, a, a bit of a change. But maybe let take us back a couple of generations in terms of the evolution. And you started to talk about it as your father decided maybe it was time to step outside of Quebec City. And philosophically, 
uh, once once somebody in, in the family starts to make that change, I mean, how is that met within the generations that are still active and within the, the sphere of the family? I think uh, it's a bit it's a big decision, obviously, the the it necessitates that you you have the right people. Uh, that was part of the decision of having people that are ready in there. And Bernard, uh, Bernard Leblanc, who's uh, our CEO today, uh, was ready and had confidence. And, and I think my brother and I felt he understood the family values because it is, our name is on the door. So there's a lot of thought about uh, how the company interacts in the community and how it treats everyone that we work with. Uh, uh, and we have been working with for for decades. You know, last week I went to three uh, three anniversaries for thirty years or more, and that's just in one week. You know, so there's a lot of people with twenty, thirty, some forty. I don't know if anyone's made it to fifty years with us yet, but forty six I think is the top. So it's a big decision. Paradoxically, honestly, I think for our children who are much younger and still at school and and pursuing sort of their their lives and trying to find out what they want to do. It was, in a sense, liberating, I think. There was some pressure to sort of think, oh, my God, if I want to come back and participate in the family business, uh, I have to be CEO. And that, that's, that's a, it's not the same business as when I started. I mean, we, we, we were selling $15 million when I started. And so it was a very small local business. I think, though, everyone focuses on the change in person. The family's still involved and we're there and we represent uh, there's the, the values of the firm and, and what sort of company we want to build. Uh, I think though that it's, a, you have to also focus on the governance that goes around it also and create the structure. So not only, we just didn't wake up one day and say, we're going to have this change. Uh, it sort of stemmed from the philosophy that's in the family of, you know, the discussion was always, does the business exist for the family or does the family exist for the business? And, and that sounds trite, but it's, it's a really important, uh, you have to decide that. And, and it makes all the difference in every decision every day. And, and I think it changes just your whole approach to leadership. So we've always, it's been ingrained that the family exists to serve the business. The, the, the business has to be first. So uh, we always come back to what's the right decision for the business, not for my ego or my brother's ego or the family. So, but once that's decided, this change, you have to put the governance in place and good governance today. Uh, you need excellence in operators. You need strong corporate governance. And you also have to build family governance because being an operator and being an owner are two different skill sets and being a good owner we don't talk enough about what that's about. You know, there's a, we're still in the Ricardian Chicago school of economics, uh, maximize shareholder value. I understand the, the whole discussion around this issue, but I believe a company is a community. It's a member of the community and it, that comes with rights and privileges and it comes with responsibilities. So the family governance, we're, we're in the process right now of trying to talk about what it means to be a good owner if you're not an operator. So it's not only a change in people, I guess my point is it's also a change in structure surrounding the business. It's it's a it's a big change. But I mean I just I work with so many great people and, and sitting there as CEO, you know, I just my thoughts aren't about tomorrow. My thoughts are are like 20 years from now, like what's right for the company. And uh, this was the right move. And, and, and it wasn't as hard as it seemed. I think it, 
might be harder going forward in a sense as the reality sets in and trying to find a new balance of how to play a role, how to serve the company, that changes completely. And, and so we're going to work our way through it. Um, Peter, you were talking to us before about, you know, your, your grandfather taking 72 trips overseas in the boat to, to source product. Um, you know, we can say we've evolved. I'm not sure we've actually evolved in the process, but it's changed. How is that? Is that, is that a better fair. assessment? Um, you know, as we look at sourcing, sourcing in the supply chain have been a massive issue with regards, uh, certainly during COVID. Uh, it, we're starting to see some loosening up. We're starting to see some changes in terms of pricing and everything else. Uh, you guys embarked on a more of a local uh, vision program in terms of you know trying to develop and buy more local so from what used to be more of a international or european you're now bringing a lot of that back and doing the work here can you talk to us a little bit about sourcing and and i guess really you know as as the change to sourcing over the years been one of necessity or one of choice no, I think uh, the change in sourcing has been one of necessity. It was a strategic uh, decision. I think in the process, though, there, there's perhaps a recency bias or a herd mentality. Perhaps we there was a sacrifice going on uh, with resilience and ability to adapt. You know, I saw huge changes around the world that were beneficial overall. But now I think we have to come back on that. And particularly, we've added into the mix, which wasn't there 20, 30 years ago, this whole question of environmental impact. So I, I think it's a combination of the pandemic, along with auditing our supply chains. As a company, we believe, to be honest with ourselves and with our customers, we have to look at our global footprint, you know, and we really, you know, there are the, the 17 sustainability goals from the UN, but I believe the priority right now has to be in terms of water and GES to a certain degree and that the focus be there because it's easy to get lost and end up trying to do everything and, and accomplish nothing. So we're that's driving us to rethink how we how we position our supply chain. Some of it's local. The reality is though, I used to go to Montreal to Chabanel and 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 I'd come back from these incredible days with, with these flamboyant entrepreneurs in the garment trade on Saint Laurent, and and I'd have these stories. And the industry just changed so much. So uh, there has been this production capability that's been lost that's forced us to go look elsewhere just to be able to supply ourselves. But right now, I'd say we're looking at you know COVID's created instability in the supply chain. So we're looking to create resilience and reduce our, our impact. And there's a lot of innovation going on in a lot of new countries and customers are, are there. We, I feel they're there and they're ready to buy better and buy more thoughtfully. And our challenge is to offer them those products uh, and to reduce that, uh, that impact. The goal started out, you know, just working sl slowly, including recycled materials. But the holy grail is circularity, is this question of being able to mine into fibers and to primary product that's already produced, whether it be recycling uh, PET plastics, polyesters, and cotton. And right now, that's what we're doing. We're really embarking on a second phase of our Vision program, which encapsulates all our products that meet certain standards of, of environmental impact reduction. And uh, we... We're, we're trying to move toward that circularity more aggressively right now, but it's going to take a lot of research. And uh, I think it's going, to, it's going to be a great time. There is a lot of innovation going on. You just have to seek it out and uh, prioritize it and explain uh, to the customers the effort that goes behind it. Because there's a, it's not a story to tell, but there is a value there that 
that you have to explain that's not just evident? I mean, you, you, you use the term seek it out, which brings to mind, I guess, two different things being a numbers guy, I guess, uh, going back into my, my education. One is that ability to seek it out and or audit your suppliers in the supply chain, which I know you did eight or 10 years ago uh, as well. And, and something that I think is, is, is we have to move away from talking about it and measuring it. So you guys, I know, have some data markers. You have some measurement tools. So if you can talk to us a little bit about that initial audit process and how that's helped you now move forward into trying to measure some of this? The initial audit process just sort of told us 10 years ago, we had a lot of work to do. We, we believed early that we had to make that change. I wasn't so worried about measuring at that point. I was just worried about moving forward in the right direction. But now we're really in that second phase where to, to make get to the, the destination, we need a proper data set and, and we have to decide what we want to measure and how we're going to measure it. Because between the Higgs index and and some of the controversy we've seen around some of these measurements and other indexes and other services, uh, we're really right now building the data set to allow us to sort of continue this journey and have clear markers and objectives of where we want to go and milestones. The next part of the, it, it needs concrete, thoughtful evidence and the numbers you have to be very careful numbers are a language they're this they're just symbols that represent an idea a numerical idea you have to understand what that number represents and what's the accuracy and how the num how the number is obtained to really be able to understand what you're looking at and understand the language so there's a debate about finding the right numbers, deciding what we want to measure, and then working with you know hundreds of partners around the world, some of them who don't think this is important, some of them who think this is very important, and, and working with them in a constructive way to, to, um, to properly measure and to engage them in, in this priority. So it's got a lot of fronts of effort. I'm, I'm very hopeful. We're making progress. There's still a lot of work to do, a lot of challenges. But I'm seeing a lot of innovation around the world, and uh, and I'm seeing importantly customers who are sensitized to this, who are listening and want to participate. If we can offer solutions, well, the old expression, you can only manage what you can measure. At the end of the day, right? So you know that 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 ability to try and assess something is, and and, and I think you said it well in terms of a language. I mean, as there are many languages around the world, there are very many senses of measurement and standards with which are being used. And I, and I think from a North American perspective, we have to be front and center uh, in creating those standards because uh, a lot of other a lot of other countries, uh, as you mentioned off air to me, might be climate deniers or a few other things. And if we're not going to be front and center of, of trying to hold up that uh, that end of the, the, the equation, a lot of people won't. Absolutely. Have you, have you come across any kind of situations where you're dealing with supply chains where you're like, I just, we just walk away. It's just, I mean, there's got to be some stories of people just being so far, I don't want to say abusive, but but just not fitting into your morals and your values. Well, there's, I mean, there are a lot of factories with child labor in it, but this mm -hmm. is a fact. And this, this we just walk away with, we, we audit. There, uh, there's countries that... Uh, we tend to just not want to work in, uh, you know, we, we do follow sort of national guidelines a little bit because we're not, we don't always have boots on the ground politically and we're trying to support our national policy in that. But there are, there are obviously, there's hundreds of factories and there's hundreds of situations that we just, it's not worth it. 
Peter Simons, it's now been, what, about six months since you've made the, the big transition. We're going back to, to succession talk. And I just want to I, I get some advice from you right now, because there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are facing the same dilemma, perhaps not to the scale that you guys faced. But nonetheless, what, what advice would you give, uh, both in terms of the next generation forwarding innovation, forwarding uh, big projects within an established business, and then eventually transitioning out of it. It seems like those transitions are getting uh, a bit more complex, a bit more, um, a bit longer, a bit more interesting. The transitions are complex. I, I, I come back to that theory of, you know, it's not about, it's not about you. It's not about the leader. The leader is is there to sort of, uh, for secondary reasons, uh, he's there to service the company. And you have to ask yourself what's right for the company and what's going to keep it innovative and moving forward. You have to set up the, I mean, it's a, you do a lot of work ahead of time to prepare the ground. You have to face the reality that stuff happens and you have to face the reality of your death in a sense. Uh, you know, that's just to hang on is not to be of service to the company, I think, in my mind. And, and fundamentally in business, if I had any advice to give, sometimes some things come too slow and sometimes they come too fast. The difference for the entrepreneur is knowing when to have the courage to seize the things too fast, even if you feel you're not ready. And it's also knowing that having the wisdom when it's, you know, when it's too slow to have the patience. So it's to find that right timing and to not let your emotions drive it, but to let the, the business drive it and the people that you're committed to. I mean, you're, if you want to be a leader, you have to take care of people. That's the job. I mean, and you have to think about the future. So uh, think of what's good for others. And paradoxically, you'll probably obtain what you want. But if you think of what you want, you probably won't get it. Does that help you? I, I don't think I'm particularly wise. I, I don't know. But I, I know in my heart I want, I care about the people I work with. I, you know, accounting was founded 100 years ago. It has no measure for the value of the people you work with on your balance sheet. Intangible assets are completely disregarded in our in our quantitative accounting system. Uh, the entrepreneur has to have the ability to see past the numbers, as important as they are, and see those intangible assets, the most important one being the people around him, and he has to take care of people. You know, So if you're thinking that way, I think you look ahead and ask yourself what's right for the company. It helps you push through to something that may be coming a little too fast for you, maybe. But it's an adventure. You know, you want to be the captain of a boat. What are you going to do? Stay anchored in the port all, all day and have drink uh, mojitos on the front deck? You might as well go on a trip, have an adventure and do something. Uh, people, yes, you know, that's you do something. They just use the leadership, use the position you have to do something good, do something interesting, uh, do something courageous. Uh, maybe, maybe in my dreams, I hope one day, maybe I can inspire a little audaciousness, you know, or that, that would, that's what maybe we try to do, be it from fashion to maybe uh, to, to succession. I don't, I don't think you can be an influential leader and, and a successful leader unless you have what you're talking about. So you may be at this point, Peter, being a tad uh, low key in this exercise, but I don't think you or your family can be in business for 180 plus years if you aren't already having some kind of impact on the people and the environment around you. And it's the one thing I think we see from successful family businesses in particular, I mean, all leaders, but su successful family businesses is that ability to meld the family, the business 
business, the ownership. And when I say family, I don't necessarily mean just your family, the family of employees. You know, if you've got a hundred workers or a thousand workers, you're responsible for all of them. And, and I think that ability to influence, you know, the, 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 the new term, I guess, in social media or the newer term is, you know, influencers. I dare say that, you know, your family business goes back as an influencer 180 years, maybe just not on, uh, on Instagram, but I, I, I don't think you can have a successful place in the market in any business uh, for that long unless you are making an impact on the community and the people around you. I, I have a little tool in my head. I, I invent these fictitious people that I want to keep front and center in my decision. My, my, ther- my therapist tells me I shouldn't be doing that anymore. Well, maybe I'm crazy, but I, I did it through COVID and it helped me just focus on what's important. And I still do it today. I, I mean, I work with young people who give their all every single day. It doesn't matter what they do. And, you know, yesterday, you know, yesterday I talked about this. They, they, they have two children. He, he or she just took out a mortgage and they have a life. And, and their mortgage is for 30 years. And, and if I'm thinking in a two-year span, uh, we just don't align. And, and so if you keep these people in mind, I think it gives you another perspective. And, and I do believe you change decisions because you understand the importance of what you're doing has a different time frame for, for Robert, who just took out a 30 year mortgage with two young children than, than yourself, perhaps who, you know, is broaching on 60. And it was a really uh, great pleasure to have Peter Simons on the program today. And we'll have his one piece of advice on the way. Uh, This is from the head of the oldest family business in Quebec. But first, speaking of family businesses, Mike and successions, we welcome back Ernie Furt, tax partner, tax guru at FL Fuller Landau. Welcome back, Ernie. Thank you. Always good to be here. Succession, uh, the TV show is really fantastic, but it brings up actually the whole the whole show is revolves around this concept of what do you do when someone has to make a transition in a family business, and that the the show is based on the drama that takes place over the course of that transition. Ta- t- take us through a quick, uh, Mike, just quickly with the, the type of drama that we can see in some situations if a proper succession plan is not laid out. Oh, there's no drama in family business ever. It always <laughs> runs smoothly. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit with Peter before about that 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 overreaching uh, family business ownership. If you look at it as a Venn diagram, you end up with, you know, you end up with these three sectors. And and it's certainly from a family business perspective. I mean, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. It can it can be a governance issue. It could be an estate planning issue. It could be anything from a family battle uh, of a power struggle. It could be to the tune of a non. Uh, from a family member who is non-active in the business, who who sees what they're entitled to. So I, I think you can pretty much run a long list of anything that you think can go wrong. And certainly in a family business, it, it, it can and will. The thing that fascinates me with, uh, with Maison Simons is it's 180 years of the family getting along uh, in, in order to get to this stage. I mean, and, and Ernie, as, as, as we talk about this, it inevitably leads to the question of estate planning. And again, if I'm melding family and business and ownership and governance and everything together, uh, without estate planning, it gets really ugly. So maybe let's just kind of call this estate planning for dummies and and give us all a little bit of an insight as uh, as we kickstart uh, our, our our first show back in terms of talking about uh, wills and having your affairs in order and and, and the such. The key thing is preparation. And you have to be prepared. You have to know what's going on. You have to know what you want. And the first question you generally ask the person is, do you have a will? And a lot of people surprisingly will say no. But it's very important that you create that will and you indicate your whims and wishes on that will. And it's done in an effective and efficient manner. 
and it's registered. Other people will not have wills or will have wills that are 30 years old, where all of a sudden in, in that will, you're talking about, uh, you know, in the event of your death, your, your children will be taken care of by Aunt Susie, you know, and Aunt Susie is long gone. So you got to be careful with that, with that stuff. And you, you got to look at it, dig into it, make sure those wills say what you want. And, and then you have to take a look at your family business and your, your situation and make sure those things are in order before you get sick, before you die, before you have to have a mandate. Um, you know, you have a complicated structure. You don't know if your kids can operate that complicated structure. So consequently, what you do is potentially sit down with your accountant or lawyer or both and go through it, simplify the structure, make it easier for everybody to, to, to work on. Because in all my years working through this stuff, nobody has desired to have a very complicated structure. Everybody wants a simple structure. But sometimes accountants and lawyers make it more complicated than it needs to be. So you have to simplify Make it easier for the next generation. Make it easier uh, for the people taking care of your estate. The the will really is 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 I guess the uh, the actual uh, dissemination of the assets and and the allocation. But there's a lot more that goes into it. And and you know people have a tendency of saying, well, I made a will when I was 25, or I made a will when I was 40, and it should be good. How often are you consulting people to to rethink or revisit their wills? And how much are you starting to see now in terms of people starting to look at some of that distribution even before they die to simplify their affairs as they start as they start to pass? Or get I'm sick? seeing a, I'm seeing a lot more reviews like every ten to fifteen years, depending on the people, depending on the family situation. There could be a divorce, there could be a death in the family. You have to take a look at it when a major event happens, uh, or alternatively, every ten to fifteen years. And then you, you you pass through it and see if those whims and wishes are still exactly what they were before and and, and then correct as as required. And a lot of people look at it and, and they say, well, I'm going to do this later and do it later. And, and then you're saying, well, you know what? You're in your 80s right now. You really got to deal with it because your son and daughters won't be able to handle this stuff. So let's make things easier for them. And, and, and let's sit down, make some suggestions. What do you really need? What do you not need? And fix it. Family business is, is a lot about dynamics, a lot about interaction. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs over the years who were founding entrepreneurs who have have kind of kept the discussion of allocating ownership uh, to people in the family that are working until like the last moment, or even worse, they find out in in the will. What are some in what are some of the implications? Uh, not only financially, but from a dynamics perspective of, of waiting too long to address your issues. A lot of people don't address the issues because of these family dynamics. It says they cannot make a decision to allocate their assets disproportionately among their children due to e either a involvement in a business, non-involvement, uh, you know, non-trusting of the individual uh, for for varying sorts of reasons. And you really got to get to the bottom of it and have family council meetings often. Sit down with the family. They need to know what's going on. They need to know what needs to be done. And it, it's very important to to talk with these family members while you're alive because you can't do it after you die. 
Yeah, and I think a lot. I think a lot of the issues uh, in the future, uh, retiring generation, those people that are in their 30s and 40s now, will probably have a little bit of an easier time in that conversation. Uh, but certainly, uh, those of us that have fallen into the older generation of entrepreneurs uh, have been very, very strong at kind of keeping things very, playing very close to the vest, and, and that creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of family uh, disaccord uh, once everything is done. So that yep. stress, you don't need the stress. You know, family members, family members have to know where everything is. Who are the investment brokers? Who are the investment counselors? How many safety deposit boxes do you have? Where are they? Okay. Do you have a life insurance policy? It's like you should sit down one weekend when it's raining and write down all of the stuff that you have and indicate who is the custodian of all of this stuff. So, People know where it is. People know where the safety deposit box keys are. People know where you have real estate properties, etc. cetera. Uh, and so they don't have to go scrambling after you die to figure all this stuff out. Ernie, I'm playing you out with the succession theme song. I hope that's okay. That's fine. Ernie Furt, tax partner at FL for Orlando. Thank you so much, Ernie. You're welcome. My pleasure, always, as always. Thanks, Ernie. And as usual, at the end of our program, as we've been doing for the past 14 years, now on Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, we turn to our Inspiring Entrepreneur, the Chief Merchant of Simons, the oldest family business in Quebec. And uh, Mr. Simons, we ask you, please, for your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. Oh, big question. Uh, I would say we live in a myth where we under, underestimate in today's world entrepreneurs and business people in general the role luck plays in business. There is a lot of luck in business. And to never forget that, because from that luck, I think you you understand that you have this gratitude and a humility if you understand the luck that, that you've had in your business career. And from that gratitude and humility, you're able to understand the need to take responsibility for things. And today, it's like if you have success it's it's you're a genius if if it's successful and, and if it's not and it fails you're not a genius there's a lot of luck in business and just remember that and be grateful that you were lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time have the right mentors work with the right people and and that keeps your feet on the ground it's it keeps you humble and it 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 makes you want to participate in the communities and take responsibilities that, that a company, I think, has to take as a member of society. It's a privilege to work in Quebec. It's a privilege to do business in Canada. And I'm lucky to have that privilege. I've, we've got incredible customers, and, and they bring a lot of joy to me every day, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm hoping I can I can participate in, in whatever we decide to do as a, as a society. Mike, what a treat for uh, to kick off our 14th season. Most definitely, you know, and I, and I listen to Peter's words of advice, and it reminds me of my dad growing up, who used to say to me, "I would." Prefer- oh my God! <laughs> no, I did. I didn't mean Peter in terms of your age. The, the, the comment was, "I would. I would rather be lucky than good any day." Was the comment that he used to make. And, you know, or the other one was, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing how lucky you get when you work hard. So, you know, you, you can take that into it, Peter. I do agree with you that the, the luck component has to be part of it. But I think we're all responsible when we succeeded at being part of that luck and, and, and finding ourselves in there. And, and I think, Dan, listening to, to Peter talk about the success of a family business that's gone on that long and kind of the humble nature of listening to Peter talk is, is, is actually quite inspiring. It has been. Peter Simons, thank you so much. What a way to kick off our 14th season. We appreciate your time today. 
Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. Good luck with the seasons. Thank you so much. Mike, next week we'll be chatting with Etienne Merino, the co-founder and senior vice president marketing of Heyday by Hootsuite. They're a customer messaging platform that combines uh, the power of conversational AI with the human touch of your team. So we'll get into tech next week. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite podcast platform. Just look up Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal. And you can also log on to our website, inspiringentrepreneurs.org, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles spanning our 14 years. We'll see you back here next week. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.